0: Let me invite you to turn to Psalm 96 in your Bible, Psalm 96, as we continue marching through the Psalms. uh, uh, Sometime, uh, Associate Pastor uh, John Carroll began working through the Psalms, and and so the Associate Series in the Psalm continues. We're up to 96. I guess we can kind of almost declare partial victory when we get to 100. That would uh, be quite a milestone, but uh, Psalm 96... Uh, is a wonderful psalm in the life of the church. It, it has been an encouragement to brethren down through the ages. It, it helps uh, tie together the Old and New Testament and is uh, related to a great thread that runs through uh, all of God's work with His people and His great covenant of grace. Uh, let's uh, turn together, hear uh, the inspired and therefore inerrant Word of God. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. For He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. Amen. Let us pray. O Heavenly Father, we ask now that Your Word would be open to us. This has been a great day of feasting. Your Word read and preached and sung and prayed and seen. And so now, O Heavenly Father... Uh, We turn again to your word, this portion from the Old Testament, and we ask for the ministry of your Holy Spirit that this word might indeed dwell in great blessing and benefit in our hearts and lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Psalm 96 is a new song about a very old story. Uh, There's a new song theme that runs from the beginning of the Bible till the end. Uh, For example, in Exodus 15, in verse 2, as they're standing at the Red Sea, as God has done His great and mighty deed uh, in destroying the troops of uh, uh, of Pharaoh who were chasing them, and that God Himself is triumph, the new song, a new song is in their mouths, and they're rejoicing before the Lord. In the Psalms elsewhere, there is a reference to the new song, and it's the, the importance of singing that new song to to look forward to singing it, to singing it now, and and that we will sing a new song forevermore, the new heavens and new earth. Psalm 40, in verses 2 and 3, David, the great king prophet, sings and speaks there of the new song. And then all the way at the end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 14, in the first three verses, the 144,000, that symbolic number of Of twelve times twelve, the multiplicity of the elect from all the ages, they sing continually the new song to the praise and glory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain from before the foundation of the world. And so the psalmist here in Psalm 96 calls us to sing the new song, to hear and take it to heart, to have our life our thinking, our feeling, and our living transformed by this new song. And so let's listen to what this song is all about. In the first six verses, we we are told a basic and simple truth. Sing, sing, sing over and over and over again. God emphasizes to us through the psalmist that he calls us, that he commands us, that he wants us to sing. Music is vital to Christian worship. God commands it, not just here, not just by the book of the Psalms, not just by singing in the Old Testament or references to singing in the New But the apex of the importance of Christian singing is found in no other than in the lips of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We see during His earthly ministry that He sang in the synagogue and in the temple, that He was with His disciples, that He sang to the glory of His heavenly Father. And we see, even through the epistle to the Hebrews that He comes and joins us, that He is our brother. And so He comes and sits with us in the sanctuary. He joins in the fellowship of the worship of God with us. And he says, it says particularly that He sings with His brethren in worship and in glory to God. Singing is sanctified by the word and purpose and the command of God. And so that, that musical impulse that is in the heart and life of each and every one is something that is part of the public worship of God that He commands us. The command, oh, sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord, bless His name, declare His glory, this command of God found even just in this psalm is utterly indiscriminate. He doesn't tell us here, well, there are some of you that can stay on key. And why don't you sing and all the rest of you just keep very, very quiet, lest you disturb the wonderful sound. That's not the commandment of God in his word. Congregational singing, congregational singing from the heart, through the lips and into the ears of others around us as we add our voices to the one song going up in worship to our Heavenly Father, to that one song through the ages that's added to the voices of every other believer in every stage of redemptive history, and is even added to the sound of the angels adoring the name of God around the throne. Singing is something that God sets His joy and His glory in. It's something that He requires us to do. We come with a song on our hearts and on our lips as we gather together to worship the Lord. It's an indiscriminate command, and it doesn't depend narrowly upon talent. Now, we need to be careful. The untalented of singing They must sing, but they must sing to his glory rather than responding just with utter silence. I think it was Wesley who wrote about 20 points of practical advice to those that were trying to sing in the church. And he particularly addressed those who, when they saw one note on the page, tended to sort of sing another. And the advice that was given was that they were to sing, but perhaps they might want to do it with just a little lower volume than the person next to them. Oh, I'm sure there's some technical musical terms. Miss Gladys can, can help me understand those afterwards to describe that kind of squeaking and squealing sound that sometimes comes forth from us. I love the bagpipes. I I love walking through the streets of Edinburgh. I love tapes of it playing in the car. To hear the echo of the bagpipes off of stone walls and stone streets is a wonderful thing. But you know, um, our singing is not really... Well, at least in the garden it wasn't that way. Screeching and sounding like a cat whose tail is being twisted. But we must attempt to sing and do our best... We must sing with an eye not on our fellow man, but our primary eye on our Heavenly Father above. That even if we sing in but a whisper, we too add our voices and sing and praise to God. Even the untalented are called to sing, and so they must not respond to God's command with utter silence. But there's another side of the coin too. Some of us have been given by God great ability to sing. I I don't count myself among those. You know, I had the privilege growing up singing in the church choir and and everything worked out very, very well because my father was singing in my ear. And he sang baritone. And so I tried to sing baritone. And as I got older, that became a little bit more possible. Uh, When I got to seminary, I was in a... In a church choir there at seminary, and, and God blessed me with uh, uh doctor who would end up being Dr. J. Ligon Duncan III. He would sing in my ear, and he was baritone, and it, it just kind of sounded a lot like how my father sang. I think they both were on key, and so I would try to keep up. Maybe just a little delayed sometimes, but, but try to keep up and sing. But those who have great talent and great ability, they face kind of a different challenge. Those of us that are less talented must screw up our courage and find a way to participate so that we obey the Lord and encourage the saints. And those of us that are greatly talented, the more talented we are, then we must also learn to sing to God's glory rather than responding with some sort of mode of singing that tends to fall off the wagon into theatrical performance and self-aggrandizement. Both the talented and the untalented are commanded to sing to the glory of God. And we are commanded here to sing a new song. Now you know there's great debate today about what to sing and how to sing it in church life where we're not going to answer all of those questions because this text doesn't answer all of them. But I do want to do something a little unusual. I want to at least get down to the basic bedrock and, uh, and of, the, um, of the uninspired authors, the one who I think most beautifully and succinctly gives us the underlying basic principle that God is in charge of commanding and requiring worship, not we ourselves, is the old theologian and the old reformer, John Calvin. Uh, in his little treatise, Reform, The Necessity of Reforming the Church, he has a beautiful little paragraph. It goes like this. I know, Calvin says, how difficult it is to persuade the world that God disapproves of all modes of worship, not expressly sanctioned by His Word. Well, yes, it is hard. The opposite persuasion which cleaves to them being seated, as it were, in their very bones and marrow, is that whatever they do has in itself a sufficient sanction, provided it exhibits some kind of zeal for the honor of God. And so many think that in the worship of God... Whatever they want to do, as long as they mean it sincerely and zealously, that that's just okay. But Calvin says, But since God not only regards as fruitless, but also plainly abominates whatever we undertake from zeal to his worship, if it variants with his command, what do we gain by a contrary course? The words of God are clear and distinct. Obedience is better than sacrifice. In vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Every addition to his word, especially in this matter, is a lie. Mere will worship is vanity. This is the decision, and when once the judge has decided, it is no longer time to debate. And so we hear the clear command of God that we are come, we are to come before Him with singing. And on our lips is to be this new and great song, this congregational singing, where we add our voices together and lift up praise to Him as He is appointed in His Word. And the first thing here He tells us to sing about is what the Lord does. God is busy, God works, and so we work. We're made in His image. God works and we sing about His great work because that's to the praise of His glory. Verse 3 says, Declare His glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. So here, we are taught to sing about what God has done. Creation is explicitly mentioned, but but that runs our mind back before creation to God's eternal plans, to his, His decree, His planning of all that was to occur, that in His sovereignty, the Lord appointed all the means to accomplish His perfect will. And in creation that word of his power, let there be light, and there was light. In those six days that he did his creative work, we stand back and worship and give awe and honor to him, yes. And partly what he appoints for us to do is to respond by singing. We respond in singing with praise to him, for the fact that He has made us, and we are but His. And He has made all everything in the, in the world. Uh, the sky and the birds in it. The land and the animals on it. The sea and the fish in them. God is the creator of all. And His providence that He unfolds our days. We sing about God and His great and mighty and mysterious work. That God who is sovereign, not just to create but also to govern and to sustain and to direct, but yet not overthrowing our own wills that have been made according to His creation, but rather established by Him that He calls us to be true and to even sing in glory to Him for all that He unfolds in the world. And what better to praise Him for and sing about than redemption? Because God is the one who has done marvelous works. God is the one who brings great salvation. He's the covenant-keeping God. And so we sing praise to Him. There are lots of little idols in the land. We still have them today. Uh, they tend not to be made out of gold and silver and stone. We're a little bit more uh, advanced beyond that. We we have ideas and and we have thoughts and we have visions and values and agendas. And if we don't get them from God and His Word, then, then we create all these cute little, well, these, these little godlings. These little godlings that we fill our mind and our lives and, and our society and our culture with. It's so wonderful. We're quite proud of all that we have created as we make these out of nothing. And they are nothing. But God, the creator, the providential sustainer, the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God, He is what we sing about. He is the one. What He does. And we also sing about who He is in His being and in His essence. Verse 6 is so clear. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. The attributes of God are here being highlighted. His glory is being sung because of his splendor and majesty and strength and beauty. These aspects of his being. And if we look at the sweep of the singing, yes, we, we sing about what God has done and what who he is like, and we come to adore him and to even let that come from our lips in praise and adoration and song, and we declare it not just to ourselves or to one another, but also among the nations, among all the peoples. This psalm is a missionary psalm, teaching us that we are to come to know God better, and to love God better, and to praise God better, that we then might sing to all the world. You know, think Julie Andrews and the sound of music and you're singing to everyone that you come in contact with. But yet you're singing about the glories of God and the wonders of His creation and His redemption and how you can glorify Him and serve Him all your days. Sing, 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 the psalmist commands you. And then the latter half of the psalm, he tells you to ascribe. Verse 7 says, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Now, when the Lord tells you to do something once, you do it. When He tells you twice, you realize, man, I really need to do this quickly. And then when he tells you three times, you sit up and you realize he's very serious about this matter. Ascribe to the Lord, recognize and give back to him because of who he is and what he has done. There's probably some sort of overtone reference here to the same ultimate eschatological vision, which... Haggai had in chapter 2, in verses 7 to 9, where he saw under the inspiration of God uh, that all of the nations, all of the Gentiles would come and they would bring an offering, and the temple of God would overflow. It would overflow with silver and gold and, and every good fruit, that God's blessing would be evident on his people. Bring tribute. A scribe bring an offering and come into his courts. God so certainly deserves it. The words that we sing, the deeds that we do in bringing him, uh, the offerings that he requires, these together are to be reflective of the reality of our hearts. They're not empty words. We're not buying off God by giving our tithes and offerings. Rather, they are to be a wholehearted expression of our love and devotion to Him. And so, we come. We come and bring tribute. We come and bring glory to His name. And we worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. We tremble before Him, each and every one and all The earth, from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. We all gather together there. It's not just me and my family and that little small circle of friends that I get together with the most. No, it's everyone who names the name of Christ, who has been born again, who has been added to the body of Christ. They come and they sing for joy. Don't you look and long to be in that number and to hear that glorious chorus as it goes up. And I've got news for you. I think if I'm reading the Bible right, when that happens, you get glorified. And that means you'll be able to stay on note. You'll be in the right rhythm. You won't be shy about singing. There'll be no reason to be shy. You will sing with that full gusto of glory to God. You will sing about His glory, but you also sing about His strength. Verse 10 says, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Again, it's a great missionary vision. That God is the one who has created the earth and so it's not moved. It's a stable stage on which redemptive history is being acted out on which God's purposes are being accomplished, that God is the one who reigns over it all, and God ultimately will be seen to be reigning as all the world comes before Him and they bow down, every knee shall bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so he ends on a very uplifting note. I think it's I think it's a glorious thing. You know, we don't have the music for Psalm 96. That may make some, in the providence of God, the music we don't have and, with the Psalms. And that may be because there's something fairly culturally uh, conditioned by music. And so um, it's, uh, it's something on which different nations sing according to a different measure. But certainly I think we would say this is in a, not in a minor key. It's in a major key. It lifts up our hearts. Verses 10 through the end of the psalm. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar in all that fills it. Let the the field exult in everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For He comes. For He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people's in faithfulness oh I don't know you know my mind goes to I think those many episodes of Bambi I probably watched didn't all the the animals sing at one point and it's like the leaves are clapping their hands and and rejoicing I don't know exactly what that's going to look like or is this just metaphor that I'm I'm supposed to enjoy the the thought and and, uh, the arc of but not try to understand it like an engineer I, I don't know But the heavens will be glad. The earth will rejoice. The sea crashing. You know, it's Mendelssohn and the Hebridean overture, and it's wonderful. All in praise to God. The field exults. You know, I don't know how fields exult, but they're going to do that, whatever it is. Trees singing, God judging. And God's judgments are faithful and true and right. You know, there's nothing worse than to be under tyranny. But God is not tyrannical. He judges faithfully and in righteousness, in holiness and wisdom and truth. That's something to rejoice about in and of myself If I were just alone, I wouldn't look forward to him judging. But I am promised here, right at the end of Psalm 96, that when God judges me, he will not judge me alone. He will judge me in union, in truth, which means in union and communion with my head. And I hope your head, even Jesus Christ our Lord, Yea and Amen. Come you who are blessed of my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Blessed man. Blessed men and women, boys and girls, because Jesus loves them, died for them, was raised for them, gave them newness of life, And they, by His grace, were able to respond by singing to His glory. And so let us sing. You know, singing is a form of prayer. Let us close this sermon by singing. Miss Gladys, I'm not springing this on her. She knows it. Turn to hymn number 62. Sing to the Lord, sing His praise. This is a metrical version of this psalm. So let's stand and sing glory to God. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.